from the offices of Melman, Castagnetti, Rosen, and Thomas, just footsteps from the White House, the heart of the nation's capital. This is 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Here's your host, C.R. Wooters. Welcome to 14th NG, the podcast sitting at the intersection of business and policy. Uh, this episode, we kind of throw the whole policy thing right out the window. We're talking politics. My guest this week is Doug Thornell, currently at SKD Knickerbocker, former communications guru for Democrats, and Ken Spain, who is at CGCN now, but before this was a uh, was a lead communicator for uh, the House uh, Republicans. So there's a lot of discussion about whether or not 2018 is going to be a wave in the House. Talk about 2010, when there was a wave. Uh, what's the similarities? What's the differences? What does it feel like? Hope to gain some insight from my Republican and Democratic buddies here. Okay. Ken Spain, Doug Thornell. All right. Doug Thornell, Ken Spain, thanks for coming to 14th and G. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Um, all right. Well, why don't we start? Give us a... Ken, why don't I start with you? Uh, give us uh, two or three sentences on your background. Well, so currently I'm a consultant, like many other people in D.C., I guess. Um, over Including at three people Group. at this table. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> um, but my, by way of background, I came to D.C. by way of campaigns, uh, finished up my time on Capitol Hill uh, in the 2010 cycle as the head of communications at the National Republican Congressional Committee. Uh, the year we won the majority. I was there the previous cycle in the far less glorious 2008 cycle when I <laughs> right. went up against Doug. The good old days. Uh, yeah. but spent some time working on behalf of um, uh, the business industries and uh, pr- particularly the private equity industry, Coke industries as well. I headed up corporate communications there before I oh, came to Oh, I forgot to you did that. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Doug, give me a couple of your a uh, couple sentences on your background. Sure. Right now, I am the managing director at uh, SKD Knickerbocker, where it's a public affairs and political consulting firm. Been there for eight years. And prior to that, I did uh, a mix of campaign and Hill jobs. I worked for uh, Congressman Van Hollen at the time. I was at the DCCC in 2008, where I sparred with uh, my buddy Ken Spain a little bit and sat next to <laughs> CR. Um, I worked at the, I've worked at the DSCC. Uh, I was the senior advisor at the DNC in, in 2016 and also worked at the Congressional Black Caucus early on in my career and cut my teeth on the uh, Gore campaign uh, in uh, 99 and 2000. For the purposes of this uh, podcast, we're going to have you guys be experts on 2010. We're going to have you guys be experts on waves because um, a lot of talk earlier this year, and uh, we'll get to where we are now, about is this a wave year, would it not be a wave year? And so I started thinking about, okay, what are the other waves that I've lived through? I want to give just a little bit of context. So in 2006, you have a Bush midterm, um, Dems win big, take back the House. Um, not totally unexpected, I don't think, and the, and the, the win was not – Huge. It was twenty something seats. Um, we go to two thousand eight cycle. Um, give us the sense on you know kind of as we get to the beginning of the two thousand eight cycle. So two thousand eight, beginning of two thousand eight. What are we looking at, Doug? You want to go first, and then we'll. Well, look. I think two thousand eight. Uh, the obviously the difference was Democrats were in the majority, mm-hmm. um, and the question was is could we build on it and. Uh, the at the time it was unclear who the nominee was going to be. Uh, most people thought it was going to be Clinton, and I think there was some 
you know, there was questions as to how she would impact the, you know, the, the bottom of the ticket. You know, a lot of what we spent our time at the DCCC doing was making sure that uh, all of our incumbents who just won were, um, you know, ready for a tough reelection campaign, that they were fundraising, they were hitting their quarterly goals, that they were putting together a good uh, official team, uh, and that they were uh, that they were eyeing opportunities uh, on the official side to get some good things done, uh, but also uh, making sure that uh, they were ready to go uh, with a good campaign when that needed to start. And we were able to win, I believe, 26 seats at the time. And, uh, you know, I, I think for a while we saw certain things happen that gave us some indications that there was going to be a wave, particularly the special elections, that for us, I think for Democrats, were early signs that this was going to be a good year. We had we won Dennis Hastert's seat. We won a seat in, uh, in Mississippi, and we won a seat in Louisiana. Uh, never been, it hadn't been done in a long time. And so I think those are the you know, three really important indicators that this was going to be a special year for Dems. And so 2008, Dems add seats to the House, um, probably in a year that you guys expected. You guys probably thought you had a shot at taking some seats back there at the beginning of the cycle, right? You know, uh, I suspect we were we had just taken the House back. We had some pretty vulnerable people. I mean, mm-hmm. I can speak for myself. I went down to run the incumbent operation because it was potentially going to be vulnerable. Uh, and, it, it, you know, as you guys started that cycle, uh, we'll get to two, we're going to fast forward to 2010. What was your, what was the thinking in eight? I remember for what, going back to 08 really yeah. quick. I just remember thinking to myself, like, at some point, the environment's going to get better, right? And it only actually got worse, mm-hmm. um, particularly once, you know, there was like a little moment when Sarah Palin was chosen as the vice presidential nominee. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, everything came out on her. And then the environment kind of snapped back to where it was. And then, of course, the economic crisis occurred. Yeah. So that's actually, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I want to stop right there because that's where I want to start. It feels like President Obama gets reelected. House majority is uh, for the Democrats is as big as it was for a really long time. Um, And we have the financial crisis, which is a pretty significant thing. Uh, The result of that is you end up having to have the Hill does some action on the stimulus package. Mm -hmm. How are you at the at the NRCC thinking about that? Because you have a now you're into like quickly legislating and you've got all these tough seats that have to actually make some tough decisions. Yeah. So I remember, I think in January it was of 2009, we had gone to the House leadership retreat. So, you know, at the time it was John Boehner, Eric Hanner, Pete Sessions, my boss, who was the chairman of the NRCC, among others. And we were sitting there going, what are we going to do? You know, I remember everybody thinking the environment's probably not going to get better for a long time. Uh, And then the stimulus vote came around. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of we expected at the time for more of the more moderate members to kind of vote for it. Sure. Um, And then they didn't. And at the time, we only really had like five or six moderate (laughs) members left. So it really (laughs) put them in a small conference room and said, like, you know, let's all. Then, of course, you know, anytime you have one party rule in Washington, you know, things start to get a little bit sideways, I think. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. So to set that up, you have a stimulus package that gets basically it's passed by Democrats in the House, primarily Democrats in the Senate, signed by a Democratic president, spends a ton of money on roads, bridges, things like that, an idea to kind of move along the economy, whether or not that was effective is a, is a question mark. The next two pieces in right. health care and energy. What were we thinking in, in 10, Doug, as you're starting to navigate cap and trade and health care? I remember in... Um in 2009, we had our uh, we had the Democratic retreat, mm-hmm. caucus retreat, and um, a pollster who was doing the presentation said, 
look around, look at the person to the left, and look at the per- look at the person on the right of you, and most likely they're going to be gone next year. <laughs> That's right. I was sitting next to you. Today. Yeah, you remember that? And it was a wake up call. Chris Van Hollen at the time, who was the who was the chair again for the D C and uh, and and Speaker Pelosi and others were trying to impress upon our incumbents was you need to be ready. Mm-hmm. That historical trends indicate that will tell you that a midterm first year of a presidency is going to be bad. Yep. It was bad for Clinton. It was bad for Reagan. Mm-hmm. Uh, it traditionally is bad. The, you know, uh, George Bush, uh, George W. Bush had a had a good one, likely due to um, his handling of the of 9-11. Uh, but they're generally bad. So yeah. be ready. Now, um, when we did the, you know, the Recovery Act, when it passed, uh, you know, there wasn't Obama's numbers didn't change. He was still very popular heading into the spring. And yep. and I think the working assumption on health care uh, was that this was going to be a really hard vote for Republicans mm-hmm. uh, because people wanted health care reform. They, um, you know, that it was very, it pulled very, you know, the idea of health care reform pulled very sure. well. Uh, and, um, and that it was going to be something hard for Republicans to oppose. I think what we learned, obviously, is that bill that size and that complicated can be easily picked apart and demonized. Sure. And Republicans did a you know did a, a job on that. And um, cap and trade vote was so tough on a lot of our uh, frontliners, our vulnerable Dems. Uh, they fa- they faced a lot of pressure back home that it made it harder for those same members to be fully on board and ready to go on health care reform because the cap-and-trade vote was so difficult. I, yeah, I think that's a really important point because I look back in 2009, and to me the tipping point was kind of, I think it was like June-ish was the cap-and-trade vote or yep. July, mm-hmm. right around then. And I, we, we actually had a few Republicans vote for it, and they went home and were just kind of excoriated. Mm-hmm. And... That was when, you know, you started to see a few of the town halls begin to pop up and you're kind of going like, what's going on here? People are yelling and screaming. I don't get it. But we always kind of knew at the campaign committee, knowing in the background, once that vote had taken place and we saw what the fallout would be, we could apply a great deal of pressure to Democrats, knowing that it was going to be really hard for them to vote for cap and trade and the health care bill. Sure, and sure. so that was going to make Nancy Pelosi's job really hard. And the more we thought that the process would sort of be on display, mm-hmm. um, the harder it would get for Democrats. Now, of course, they obviously passed it. I think it's a testament to how good Nancy Pelosi is at her, at her job. Um, but mm-hmm. I do think, you know, at that point, the unemployment all, during all of this time, what people forget was the unemployment rate was in the double digits. Yeah. And I think that was ultimately the big thing yeah and we were still we were still losing jobs um mm-hmm. yeah. and uh uh and there was still i mean look there was a lot of um there was a lot of anger in the, out there about tarp um yeah. it was something that had to be done it was the responsible thing to do uh by both parties and the president uh and president bush people forget it was president bush who signed it it wasn't obama but it was a hard you know that I think TARP made it really hard on Republicans uh, to um, be for spending any more money. Um, yep. So it made it hard for them to support for uh, support the Recovery Act. And so people were still feeling very anxious about their uh, economic situation. And, um, and I don't think we allowed ourselves, looking back, and I look back quite a bit on those days, you know, I don't think we allowed ourselves enough time to sell the Recovery Act sure. and everything that it did. And, and so, you know, we didn't really properly brand it. And uh, so, and Republicans did a good job of um, 
of uh, turning it into a negative for uh, for many Dems. So I would just say this, and this is this is kind of where I start to get to the the, the similarities that potentially happen now. So Democrats, the big white whale for Democrats was was healthcare. It's been healthcare for a really long time. We're going to be the first people to do this forever. A few bumps in the road. Sausage making was really ugly. Senator Kennedy passes away in the middle of the whole deal. That changes the dynamic. Uh, Senator Kennedy is replaced by Scott Brown. Um, so you now have a Republican pickup and a place that should be a uh, – so that you have to go rework this bill a little bit. So it just makes sausage making look so much worse. Um, and then basically Democrats pass a health care bill. It feels like at that point in time the Tea Party gets lit on fire. And to your point, I feel like it was probably brewing – and people were probably grumpy about the election, and people were probably grumpy about unemployment and spending and all the rest of that stuff. But that's what lit the fuse, right? Yeah, I think that's where the environment really began to take hold. And from there on out, it was there was kind of no looking back. I remember the recruitment um, for candidates became a lot easier. Fundraising started to pick up. Republicans had not been raising a lot of money for the previous four years, in terms, at least for Congress. Um, but you started to see like a real uptick in the intensity, and there's definitely parallels, you know, in terms mm-hmm. of what we're seeing today. We, I think in 2010, we fielded candidates in over 430 districts. No way. You know, huh. Close to uh, yeah. of the Almost everybody. Every single district yeah. almost had it. We, and we tried to have a candidate. Who were the five? <laughs> I don't, I, I, I don't remember. We have to, I have to go back and take a <laughs> exactly. look at it, actually. But, yeah, uh, we and, – and I think you, you're kind of seeing that now yep. on the Democratic side. So I, I do see parallels to – what we're kind of looking at today because um, i wonder if there is a parallel at least some version of a parallel with you start with where you know we're going to get to the summer in a minute but you have the women's march and you have you know gun marches and you have all this activism amongst the democratic base kavanaugh is just probably an example of it um where the the kind of grumpiness amongst voters a set a set of voters goes from like a five to like a 25 and it felt like in the middle of the healthcare vote, that's what happened. And it felt like, at least for me, when I was on the official side at that point in time, there were a lot of people voting, casting that vote, knowing that it was tough, potentially career-ending, and either did it or didn't do it, but they knew that was the case. I wonder, is the same... The, the, the similarity I want to draw is a tax bill that was just passed mm-hmm. here. So you Republicans' great white whale is reforming the tax code. Um, they pass a corporate tax decrease... Um, that makes, you know, uh, America competitive around the world, primarily with Republicans. It's a weird thing because I don't know that that activated our base the same, but the similarities are are totally there. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think it's – I don't know that the tax bill has gone over at least as poorly as the health care bill did from a political standpoint. I think I think it's fallen flat to Mm – at, at, in the very best case scenario, <laughs> I, you know, I think it's it's an, probably a net negative. It's certainly a net negative in states like Jersey and New York and sure. California, where there are races right now because of uh, the property tax issue. Mm-hmm. In particular, that aspect of the tax tax bill was always going to be problematic, particularly in blue states. And I think that's where Democrats have effectively le- uh, leveraged. I remember Republicans thinking this was going to be our key to, you know, the key to running for re-election. Totally. And this was going to be our way to say, hey, look, we've helped the economy along. The economy is getting better, which it is. But sure. I don't know that people necessarily attribute growth in the economy right now to what Republicans have done with the it, tax bill. It feels very similar to what we thought about when we were passing the health care bill. I think a lot of people, and I'll look to Doug on this one, a lot of people thought we're going to run on this. 
we're gonna we're gonna talk about how we're getting we're lowering the cost of healthcare and we're you know covering poor people, and it really didn't turn out that way. Well, with the tax bill, Republicans aren't even campaigning on it right now. But I think, not, I think no, I mean, I'll get to the comparisons. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, I think the I think within the parties, they figured that I think I know. I mean, Republicans talked about uh, one of the things that they sold their members on was that this was going to be very helpful to their reelection and they needed to do it. Mm-hmm. And they needed to do it in part because they failed repealing the ACA. And since they failed repealing the ACA, if they had failed to repeat to pass tax reform, I think the we would be in a they would be in a worse spot than they are today, and they're mm-hmm. not in a particularly great spot. But mm-hmm. uh, it, I think their base would have been totally um, uh, dispirited after that. Uh, the tax bill, I think, if anything, just sort of stabilized uh, Republicans at that time. You saw a bit of a bump around the stories related to uh, bonuses here and there, but then yeah. it sort of, you know, it sort of went away as a, as a positive for them. And you're not seeing members of Congress, you're not seeing senators really running on the tax bill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm doing a handful of races and it's just not something that they're campaigning on. I think they see it as a, a liability in some respects. And and for Democrats, I think the health care bill, um, ha- you know, held out a lot of promise when we passed it. And uh, and it was just hard ultimately to message on it, and Democrat and and uh, Republicans turned it around, used it as a negative, as as many Repo- as many Democrats are using the tax bill now, and pointing out a lot of the you know the special interest groups that benefited from it, sure. and the fact that it raised the deficit, and uh, and actually undermined the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know, look, I sometimes you go in and you think you have the right you know these really smart people and the right you know the bright consultants and the leaders and everyone has this notion of how things are going to play and they just don't play out that way well i think two things i would add number one i think in both cases the political environment was already not looking good so i think both pieces of legislation for sure were susceptible to an already kind of deteriorating environment for Mm -hmm. the incumbent president so i think that's obviously going to be problematic anytime i also just think that the days of passing major landmark pieces of legislation are probably over. Yeah. Because it's so hard to message on them. Like Especially you, when it's one party. I you, think both oh, people learn yeah, it's one definitely. party. Yeah, certainly with one party. And maybe it is easier when, when you have you know, the potential for bipartisanship. Yeah. It's going to be really, really difficult because it's just so easy to pick apart certain aspects of the legislation that you can say are going to do x y and z and sure and, and just ram those you know up down the throats of it feels it, it does feel similar though now doesn't it i mean i don't feel like i mean i'm not in the trenches on this stuff as, as much as you guys are but it doesn't feel like a whole bunch of um republicans are running where you know we cut your taxes ads necessarily right now to close the campaign by the way as we're as we're you know we're taping this on the, the end of october so you know we're seeing whatever campaign ads are yeah. out there at this point um and and the same was true in healthcare, I mean, nobody ran the like because there was the get your doctor, you keep it, and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so here, let me take you to some specific points in 2010. So what did it feel like? And Ken, I'll start with you on this one. Um, in the summer of 2010, so the summer because I had I had some pretty distinct feelings. I thought the, the summer felt different than the fall. Um, so the summer of 2010, everything's done. Healthcare's done. We're just basically heading into into re-election. How are you feeling there? You've, you've just seen an uptick in, in campaigns. Money's pouring in. How are you feeling on the summer? I think we felt relatively good. I don't know that we necessarily felt we would win the majority. I think that there was 
you start getting, as you know, a lot of your candidates sure. start doing benchmark polling around the time of July, and you start mm -hmm. getting those candidate polls back. You're taking a look at the numbers, and you're like, okay, well, we can win here, but it's going to be, it's going to take a lot, and mm -hmm. it's going to mean we're going to have to run some really good races. Uh, we definitely felt like the fundraising had improved. We felt like our candidate class was stellar. Um, you know, there had been some retirements on the mm -hmm. Democratic side, which we, again, we're seeing in what I think is going to be a wave election cycle here in, in, in 2018, but similar comparison there. Uh, I think we felt good, um, I, but it wasn't really until like mid to late August where we began to feel. It wasn't until mid to late August where we started to feel like we had a real shot at winning this thing. Is the same for you, Doug? What do you think? I think what happened in, in August, in September, was it wasn't that these races started to um, go sideways. They were all within the margin of error, pretty close. What I thought, what was a warning sign for me at the time, is how many new, rate, new Democratic seats went online for Republicans. Sure. And that they were able to, between the NRCC and a number of the other groups out there, expand the map. Mm -hmm. And so instead of 30 or 40 districts, you know, it was 70 mm -hmm. and, or 80. And um, and they were in places that we weren't really expecting. Now, we, we told all of our incumbents to be ready, but there were definitely districts where I think, uh, you know, because they be, when they became pickup opportunities, I think that was when I, you know, I, I, I thought that we were going to be in, you know, that we were going to have a, a really difficult election day. Uh, I, you know, I up until election day, I, I, I still thought we could keep the House. Ultimately, look, when you're defending and Republicans are finding this out this cycle, you know, Democrats are investing in over 75, I think 75 seats. The DCCC is investing in 75 seats. That's a lot of seats. Those are Republican seats, not just mm -hmm. these are all Republican seats. There are also a lot of open seats this cycle, yeah. uh, much like in 2010. Mm -hmm. And open seats, you know, you don't have the benefit of incumbency. It's just harder. It's harder to defend an open seat than it is to defend an incumbent. And I think ultimately, if Democrats win the House this cycle, I think a lot of it will have to do with the fact that we recruited good candidates in these open seats and were able to take advantage of it. It's interesting that both you guys mentioned this because my memory um, was that in the summer, before we got to the August recess, things were bumpy but not uncontrollable, right? We felt like we had some brush fires we had to put out but not the forest fire. By the time we get back from August, it felt like we were in full forest fire mode. And to Doug's point, we were getting people from suburban Illinois and other people who are coming in who are donors to the DCCC and other places now saying, by the way, I need your help because I just did a poll and now I'm underwater. And I don't know if that's I, similar you know, from your perspective. I remember, well, two things I would point out. Number one, one of the things that we really tried to do in fielding as many candidates as we could, I remember we had we had this goal of fielding a really good candidate, you know, a quality candidate in in, in 100 seats. We wanted sure. to put 100 seats on the table. And I remember we were kind of like laughed out of the building at the mm -hmm. time that we said it. Um, but one of the things we tried to do was sort of go after – donors to the campaign committee. We said, look, yep. who are the biggest donors to campaign committees? The chairman. Mm -hmm. And so we actually had like a strategy built around how are we going to target John Spratt? How are we going to target Ike Skelton? How are we going to target <laughs> David remember, Obie? I remember when, the, yeah. I remember when the, all that targeting happened. <laughs> My phone started ringing off the hook from chairman saying, yeah. we, we Help. are. Yeah. <laughs> and it starts and you start like, yeah. you know, you know that you're potentially not only, yeah, maybe you'll make the district 
you know, potentially competitive, right. but you're hoping, you know, that more than, more than likely, at the very least, you're going to cut off a funding source to the campaign committee. So much of it is psychological warfare, yeah, right? I mean, when you begin this, I remember in, in, in 07, you know, there was a strategy that we implemented uh, at the DCCC to, to just try to make it so we, we had a retirement a wish list of Republicans that we were trying, you know, that we were hoping would retire. Mm-hmm. And we went after them every day with releases in their district. You know, it was a sort of full, thr- you know, full onslaught on on these members that we were hoping would retire. A lot of them ended up retiring. Uh, and um, and that obviously, again, makes it makes it makes it easier when you're going when you're competing in an open seat. And so there are other there are things like that. I mean, Ken mentioned the the thing with the chairman. I mean, I think you, you know, a lot of it is create is the psychological warfare to get in members' heads, at, you know, in the beginning part of a, you know, during the election cycle, uh, because then they make mistakes. But by but by September, to your to your earlier point, some of those chairmen actually started finding themselves in real races, and I remember September being kind of like a, a seminal moment, at totally. least for me. We had been on TV in Ike Skelton's district for three weeks. Yeah. And we couldn't move a number to save our lives. And we were like, God, why aren't the polls changing at all here? And I remember our, you know, talking to someone. They're like, well, we're not going to pull out of that race. We're supposed to win the majority. We can't be the first ones to pull out of a race, you right, know, even right. though we're probably wasting money in this district at the time. And then a week later, it just totally flipped. It's yeah. like the bottom fell out. And that to me was, and that's sort of what's different, I feel, this time around. I definitely Republican races are coming off the map here in, in 2018. But I do feel like in 2010, around September, we just saw, saw this sort of explosion sure. of races that occurred. And we were just like, oh, wow, that race is over. That race is over. Yeah. We're going to win this race and this race. How do we take this money and shove it into some other district? Yeah, and I think the targeting that happened there, I, I, I'm going to put a pin in the 2018 piece for just mm-hmm. a second. But I think the targeting of the chairman, um, which you all did well, were two things. One is they were donors to the DCCC, so that slowed their money down going to other members. They also tend to be older yes, and didn't have campaign structures. They hadn't run a real campaign in a really long time. I and mean, Ike Skelton was 10,000 years old when you guys started running against him. <laughs> there was that as well. I wonder if that piece didn't happen earlier this cycle, if some of those older folks or people who knew they were going to be targeted just retired. That, that I don't know. There seems to be a little bit more of that, but like maybe it wasn't the exact um, reason you targeted them, but one of the great benefits of targeting those folks is strictly on like when's the last time they had a competitive race right and if it's been 10 or 15 years you know we i will say people were calling me asking me for like you know do you have a pollsters number do you have like whatever else like in august yeah. and then we yeah. were like at well, that point you know if you're luck. <laughs> <laughs> right what's your, what's your pollsters number like i don't know just get your resume ready that would probably be easier well um, you know if you look at i mean how many uh republican chairmen have uh retired this cycle yeah. more than half i think i mean so it's a pretty significant that's why I just wonder number. if that isn't the same oh, I definitely uh, think it kind is. of crowd. Well, well now, think, well, now yeah. we've seen a few wave elections now. And mm-hmm. so a lot of these members know what they look and feel like. I see it. Plus, I think Trump has turned off a lot of Republican members, sort mm-hmm. of the old kind of establishment type Republicans. Yep. So I think in combination, those two things, that's, I think, led to a lot of retirement. Right. Uh, interesting. So so here's my uh, here's my thought, and, and I've mentioned this a few times. So you have a, you have a toxic political environment with some big policy implications that happened on the Hill in a partisan way. 
uh, what I mean by that is just voted by, you know, not bipartisanly at the end of the day. Right. Both of those things have happened, but happened in 10, happened in 18. You have a huge grassroots movement of base folks. I mean, I can literally remember walking across from the Cannon office building to the Capitol through what felt like a riot to me to vote for health care. Um, I think, you know, you're seeing now members getting yelled at at restaurants and on airplanes and all these other things. So it feels a lot like we're in the same place or a similar place. However, and, and maybe, I, maybe I'll just start with that. Does it feel the same to you all? And then kind of where do you see us going from here? Why don't I start with you? I don't think it feels quite the same. It did feel the same for a long time for me. That's kind of where I was going. <laughs> but now it doesn't feel the same to me. Yeah. And this is, I think, number one, obviously, it's Trump. Sure. I mean, Trump just, he changes the news cycle from day mm-hmm. to day. I think, like, I mean, people probably don't even remember that the tax bill was passed in this Congress right, at this exactly. point. There's been, you know, 8 billion news cycles since then. So well, I how long ago was Kavanaugh? Like three weeks ago? It, it feels like it's 100 years ago, right? <laughs> right. And I think while Republicans were looking, I think, probably at a ceiling in terms of losses, like at 45-ish, yep. I think a lot of people thought maybe a month or two ago, I think that Kavanaugh, you know, for better or worse, I think has been very helpful for Republicans, particularly in red-leaning states or red-leaning districts. Mm-hmm. I think he's only reinforces the 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 narrative that you know Republicans don't like women for to put it simplistically in the suburban districts sure. where Republicans are really facing problems in in mm-hmm. the House. But I do know, and just kind of talking to the campaign committees, talking to the folks that you know are in and around these campaigns, they'll tell you Republicans who were getting seventy percent of Republicans before are now getting ninety percent of them, which is why you're starting to see the movement in these red states, particularly in the Senate. Yep. Um, but in the House, you know, maybe that's sort of like curtailed, you know, mitigated some of the damage. Yeah, I will say just on that, you make a good point. I think I think that the Senate, both in ten and now are kind of different animals. Senate can be their own races from here and there. I think the House kind of moves in like a big, you know, kind of big group together, if that makes sense, right? I mean, I don't know. What do you think about now? Because it feels to me, to to Ken's point, in 2010, Republicans felt like they just started throwing way more on the board at the end. As they were closing, whether or not those, those races won or not, you were getting more on the board. It feels like now, and again, I'm just an observer at this point, that... Democrats, the bottom hasn't fallen out of Republicans in the way that it did in 2010. doesn't mean it won't be a wave anyway, but it, do, it does feel a little different. And maybe Kavanaugh's different, and maybe Trump's different, or maybe the districts are different. I don't know. What do you think? And it didn't fall out like it did in 2006, uh, with, particularly with the Foley scandal. Oh, right? that's right. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I have always been – I mean, I've been bullish on this year – from the beginning of this cycle uh, that I thought Democrats would have a good chance of winning back the House. Um, I've always been, uh, you know, I've always tried to sort of make, you know, not let my emotions get the best of me um, because you lived through 2016 and uh, question everything that's going on because, you know, the polling in 2016 you know, obviously showed that President or uh, Secretary Clinton was going to win and mm-hmm. we were going to win certain Senate seats and it just didn't materialize. So mm-hmm. I'm still optimistic about the House. I think we're still going to uh, win the majority. Um, and I don't think a lot has changed in the House landscape. I mean, I think it's still the, the, the landscape that existed that exists today is pretty much where what it was before Kavanaugh. I think things have changed a little bit in the Senate, but I don't know if that's so much a function of Kavanaugh, if it's more of just a function of the Republican Party sort of waking up 
And um, maybe the Kavanaugh um, confirmation hearings were a spark. But I also think that Trump is uh, pretty good at um, at, at uh, lighting a fire <laughs> under his, uh, you know, under his base, and so they're coming home, right? Yeah. Some of these Republicans who you know uh, were either thinking about you know staying home or maybe deal, maybe even considering voting for Democrats, you know, now they're coming home, uh, and we're seeing a lot of races that are two or three points either way. It doesn't to me, you know, it doesn't feel like. 10, it doesn't feel like 8. It feels like its own unique cycle. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the last two weeks are going to be, you know, obviously really interesting to follow what's going, you know, to follow how this, how this ends up because, you know, that there are still, um, you know, I think the Senate is still up for grabs. It's likely to um, go Republican, but there's, you know, there's some interesting Mm -hmm. races there. And then the House is, you know, I mean... All of these races in the House are within two or three points. Well, and as we've learned, two weeks is an eternity. Yeah, right. This, exactly. Particularly in this environment. Yeah, where right. It's the longest two weeks of change. your life. I mean, the Mueller investigation, who knows if that, if yeah. and when that's going to wrap up. <laughs> right. But right. what happens there? If something happens there, the bottom yeah. could easily fall out for Republicans. So, yeah, I think, but I, I do feel like it's tighter. I feel like it's tighter. I think where the ceiling for Democrats was maybe 45. I think it's probably closer to 35. I think a good night for Republicans is probably twenty and holding mm-hmm. on to the House, but by a couple seats. But if yeah. you look at, I mean, people will tell you right now, you're looking. There's twelve to fifteen seats that are already off the table. But it's interesting to me. It's not. Um, yeah, if that's the calculation, which I believe it is, it's not forty or fifty. It's not like thirty. At some point in time, a while back, people were like, "We're going to put twenty-five or thirty away before it even starts, and then we're going to go try to go find some more." So it doesn't feel like we're there. I wonder. Uh, I got two last questions for you guys, and then I'll let you go. First is the president. It feels like the president has leaned in and said, I can talk to the base, and I'm going to go talk to them. And I'm going to scream and yell and make sure that they're fired up. And in 2010, I think the president, President Obama could have talked to the base and knew how to mm. talk to them. And the candidates kind of were like, mm, we're not really sure. Yeah, I'm kind of a believer in run toward the wave, not away from it. Interesting. And so I, I think... The environment's already really bad, right. and there's really kind of no escaping the president at this point. Plus, mm-hmm. if you do try to part ways with the president, I mean, the backlash we've seen, we kind of saw it in 16 sure. with some of the candidates who ran last time. The, 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 the blowback might not even be worth it. So I, I kind of tend to think that Republicans are going to stick with the president. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the most popular president among Republicans, more so than Reagan. I think there was only George W. Bush who was more popular during like the, the few weeks after 9-11 yeah, amongst right. the Republican base. So it's just very hard to part ways with him. Also, I just think the nature of the districts, by and large, make it hard um, to part ways. But when you look at the districts in the suburbs, you know, it's going to be really tough. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really where Republicans are going to face their biggest challenge. It's probably where they're going to get beat. Mm-hmm. You know, it's women, it's suburban women and independent voters, and they're just breaking away from Republicans at a rate of two to one. Any thoughts on the president? There, it's two different strategies in the Senate and the House. Like in the Senate, yeah. you know, you've got a bunch of states that are red states that the president did really well in, and he's going to um, West Virginia, sure. Texas, he's going to Florida, Been to Montana, barely, a couple times. right? I mean, so North Dakota, uh, so he's he's able to go to those places uh, mm-hmm. and help out the you know the 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 statewide candidates there. He isn't really going to a whole lot of suburban districts, mm-hmm. and that's to Ken's point because. He's deeply unpopular there, and he's deeply unpopular among women. I mean, if you look at the spread in most polls, it shows that women favor 
Democratic candidates sometimes two to one uh, over this is the that, Republican uh, generic uh, Democrat, which I always keep wondering. Generic, if you find but also, one of those. <laughs> but they also, but I mean, if you look at Trump's favorable ratings or approval ratings with women, they're you know they're they're way underwater. Sure. Uh, and so I think these candidates who try to be too cute in terms of you know try to sort of create separation between you know themselves and the sitting president. It just makes them look inauthentic, you mm-hmm. know, and I, and I think authenticity is such an important thing in, in politics. And I think re- Demo- I think voters reward it. And look, you know, I remember who, who was it? Alison Lundergan Grimes, who mm-hmm. ran and didn't want to admit that she voted for Obama. Yeah. And it was just kind of like, come on, in Kentucky. Yeah, like, yeah. You know, just, <laughs> that's right. Yeah. You know, and I think that that's just <laughs> one of those things that people, yeah. you know, you, you just got I mean, you know, it just makes you look like uh, look fake. Uh, we've walked through what a 10 wave felt like. We talked a little bit about six and eight. So I'll go to both of you. Is it a wave year? What's your What's your rough number? You know, uh, at the end of this, um, and don't feel like you have to vote for the home team, right? So no one will blame you if you if you pick the other side of it. Doug, you why don't you go first? I think it's a wave, probably in the House, in the sense that I think Democrats are still positioned to win somewhere between twenty five and thirty seats. In typical years, that's considered a wave. The Senate's a little bit different story. Uh, I could see uh, Republicans picking up uh, anywhere between, you know, two to three seats in the Senate. Um, a good night for Democrats is if we, um, you know, if we really sort if we if we run the table on defending our um, incumbents, mm-hmm. uh, and potentially even if we lost one or two incumbents, maybe we pick up Arizona and Nevada. Mm-hmm. So it's a, a push. Uh, I think that would be an exceptional night for Democrats in the Senate. Remember. Um, most people didn't think that we, you know, most people thought we were going to lose five to eight seats in the Senate. Yeah. And so I don't think we're going to lose eight seats. What do you think, Ken? It's a wave election. Okay. I don't think it's a tidal wave. I think that there are probably 15 to 16 seats that are already off the table right now that people at the campaign committees or consultants, if they were being honest, would tell sure. you that's where we're at. But then of the remaining 29 or so uh toss-up races, at least according to the Cook Report, mm-hmm. um, 21 of them are in the suburbs. And so that tells you that the math starts getting really easy for Democrats. If Democrats win two-thirds of the of the 29 or 30 toss-ups, I think we're looking at 35 seats on the night of the election. And I'm going to say plus two in the Senate. In the Senate? Okay. Yeah, this is bad map for Democrats this year, unfortunately, for them. Yeah, I think the Senate's tough. I think the Senate's tough for us. I think so my, my House prediction with all of these races to your point is that there's 20 or 25 that are within the margin of error and here's what i think i don't think we know how to poll yet so i don't i think they are genuinely in the margin of error i think they're genuinely a coin flip and then i don't know i think and maybe i'm just going to put on my blue shirt and say dems win a whole bunch of them and they they win the house but i think their majority today is smaller than it was three weeks ago i don't know what's going to happen between now and then so i think we probably have divided government and you know probably both teams can point to something that they won on election day that's my guess I, look, I really appreciate you guys coming in here. I, I, the prediction part is fun, and everybody wants to do that. But the historical part, I think, is more interesting to clients and friends because we've all lived through this once or twice, and there's a lot of similarities here. And yet it still doesn't totally feel two weeks out that 50 seats are on, on <laughs> potentially lost at this point in time. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Maybe I'll have you guys back in here afterwards, and we can uh, great. Uh, decide who was right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for coming in, fellas. Yeah, thanks it was for great to us. be with you.
Well, that was a fun conversation. The political stuff is always fun to talk about, especially especially when we're all just projecting what might happen. Kind of an interesting ride between now and November. Uh, thanks for listening. My email address is wooters at mc-dc.com. And until next time, the intersection of business and policy, right here, 14th and G.